Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello and welcome to this week's edition of Troy Noons' an Absolute Livecast. With me as always, Andy Pregler, I'm Steve Haller, and joining us, not Christian DeGuzman, but instead our lead basketball writer, James Zuba. How are we doing, guys? Good. Less, less insightful and uh, not, not as funny as Christian, but happy to be joining the show and we got a lot of oops to talk about. He's so yeah, modest. Yeah. <laughs> You are you you are definitively just as insightful, if not more so, when it comes to the area of basketball. So for those of you that tune in for the MLS talks or the lacrosse talks or the Syracuse football offensive line talks, this is not your week. This week we are chatting collegiate basketball, specifically that of the Syracuse Orange and James. We're going to start off with the obvious of everything that happened this week, and then we can look at the season as a whole. Um, for everybody who is just tuning in, last time that we talked, Christian, Steve, and I declared this basketball season dead and that we were going to go into Barclays. It was going to be a formality. Nothing interesting could possibly happen. And then this week happened. Um, there's a lot to talk that we could theoretically talk about, but I want to start with James and asking you a question, which is, if Syracuse had knocked off Duke without Buddy Bayheim, and they would have lost to Miami or whoever would have been in that alternate universe when, when weird shit happens, uh, would the season have been a success just because they would have knocked off Duke without their best player, or would people find a way to say Syracuse blew an opportunity to win the ACC tournament and sneak into the, t- and sneak into the big dance. No, this, the season wouldn't have been salvaged, but it would have been a great consolation prize. And I think one that people would have taken going into the ACC tournament with everything else that had happened. Um, you know, it, it would have been very Syracuse. And, and I think it was very Syracuse the way that they kind of turned it on and, um, just seemingly flipped the switch because the the weekend prior, the Saturday, prior, if you remember, that Miami game at home, Syracuse is up 10 with less than two and a half minutes left and then just completely collapses against Miami. Not a good sign going into the conference tournament. You know, kind of looked dead in the water. Wouldn't have surprised a lot of people if Syracuse lost that first round game against a Florida State team that had regained strength, mm-hmm. regained some of the members of the roster. 
and then just blows the doors off Florida State and somehow competes with Duke for 39 minutes. So uh, really interesting. I don't think it would have saved the season, but I think uh, it would have been a big consolation prize in, in a lot of fans' minds. Yeah, I thought Andy's uh, question was actually going to be if we'd have beat Duke with the site of down. Because <laughs> I, I think that answer definitively is yes. <laughs> The the noon's commentariat was not pulling any punches regardless of what happened this too, week. Too uh, soon, pun in, too soon. Pun fully intended at one Bud, Budward Bayheim who threw the gut punch heard around the world. And James, I, so I think that this is something that actually is kind of like X's and O's basketball here. Syracuse shot the lights out against Florida State and against Duke. They, you know, the shooting wasn't as dominant, but we saw them play a very different style of basketball than they've played all season long. What I think that there's obviously part of this is that Duke's perimeter defense just was not the same the entire run of the ACC tournament, but Syracuse took advantage of it. And what did they do in your mind so well in both the Florida State game and the Duke game that was the aha moment that kind of unlocked this team to being something, you know, that we all wanted them to be all season long? Yeah, well, I think they came out and they just made shots. You know, it sounds simple. It sounds like something Jim Beheim would say in a postgame presser. But I think one of the things like Cole Swider getting hot really opens up so much for this team. And Samir Torrance really got some extended run and he played really well. Um, I, I almost think that given how the season had gone and how Samir had played in, in spots throughout the year, it, it almost was like he should have been given more time uh, because he's the one guy on this team who can get into gaps find shooters and and create a little bit, break his defender down, whereas everybody else on the perimeter hadn't done that as much. Um, Col- Cole Swider said it best. I think one of the things Florida State tries to do is they, they try to gap you. Um, they come off the shooter. So if you have a guy like Samir Torrance getting into the lane, they're trying to shut down that dribble penetration. They would have been better off staying on on uh, guys like Swider and staying on guys like Gerard. Um, but instead, you, you had him getting in there and he was able to find guys like Swider and they, they made shots. And from there, you know, they, they get up 15, they get up 20, and, and Florida State just looked out of it. Um, they weren't able to get stops and get back into the game. Uh, we, we can get into that Duke game. I think uh, Jim Beheim did some interesting things, switching up defenses. I thought he coached a heck of a game, um, probably his best coaching job all year. Uh, but in terms of that that Florida State game, I just think that, you know, Syracuse kind of punched Florida State in the mouth early, and it, it just knocked them out, and they couldn't get back into the game. No, they punched him in the gut. Um, yeah. They, <laughs> but – they that that Florida State game. I I was watching it on GameCast while in you know perpetual meetings all day because we had the ever so present nooner, um, and then was able to catch the highlights and watch you know the the shattered around the world. But it it did seem like you're saying that Samir being able to actually dribble drive, it, if if Florida State had just allowed him to get his and covered everybody else. That that changes the dynamic of that game, but then we see the next day, he he plays another solid game, and does this predicate you know, uh, him getting more time? I, I guess looking forward and in hindsight, would would having a true point versus having Joe, who we've seen play much better off the ball, which I think everybody has been calling for since time at this point. But does that does that open a new set, like a, a new bit of dynamism up for this team? Yeah, it definitely does. And I think a guy like Samir offers such a unique skill set in that 
you know, it's, it's different from everybody else on the perimeter. So I do think, and the, and the times that he's gotten in, you know, think, think of all the times this year where he's gotten in for maybe two or three minutes in the first half comes in, has a couple of assists, grabs a rebound, scores on that, that, that right row, uh, low block on a, on a bank shot and then comes out and then doesn't play again in the second half. Right. Um, so I know, you know, Beheim's a guy who's going to ride his top horses. Ger- Gerard's obviously that top horse, but it gets, it gets back into the roster construction and kind of how the parts are very similar on the perimeter. Uh, you know, when you look at Cole, Buddy, uh, Joe as all shoot first guys, and even Jimmy to some degree who who mixes it up and gets in the paint and scores over smaller defenders, but he can shoot too. I, I just think those guys are also similar. And when you have a guy like Samir, it warrants a little bit of time. But obviously, you know, Buddy being landlocked at the two to some degree, uh, he's played forward, but very sparingly. It doesn't really give you the option of having Joe plugged into that two spot right. because. Because Buddy is so good, because he led the ACC in scoring, you can't take him off the floor for very long. Um, so I just, I just think that's kind of the the redundancy there, and it's where Syracuse kind of got caught is that you can't really plug those guys into different positions, and unfortunately, that maybe that means a little bit less time for for a guy like Stamir, who um, played played a heck of an ACC tournament. Yeah, I still yeah. would have loved to have been a fly on the wall last off season, and we'll we'll never get it until we get some random like uh, you know uh, assisting not assistant, but like grad assistant that just doesn't care anymore a couple of years down the line yeah. to figure it. Yeah. yeah <laughs> to figure out like what went on in the off season in the back channels of like, were they targeting more people to bring in on transfers? What, what was the, like, what was the issues that led to this weird, weird ass roster construction? And it, I can't believe yeah. that this was, you know, the roster that Jim wanted to go into the season with. Just looking at the limitations, he had to know what he was working with. Here, here's my hunch, and like, if you guys disagree, let me know. But I feel like one of the the, the thing that they failed to do was retain an athlete. So you saw a guy like Kadari Richmond, the best athlete in the backcourt, go to Seton Hall. Quincy Garrier, Robert Braswell, uh, Alan Griffin obviously leaves to start his professional career. Woody Newton, those guys all leave in the front court. If you just get one of those guys, like I've said this multiple right. times this year, if you get a, a Woody Newton to stay, I think a Woody Newton could have helped the team this year, and he didn't even play at Oklahoma State. Mm-hmm. Or it took Quincy Garrett until February and March to get playing well at Oregon. I think what happened is all those guys left, and what happened was Syracuse just tried to get the best player that they could in the transfer portal, and that happened to be a Cole Swatter that they had recruited before, Samir Torrance that they had recruited before, who, oh, the, oh, by the way, was a hometown kid, and a Jimmy Beheim, who his links to the program are very obvious. So I think they just tried to get the best players they could, and then they brought him in, and then it became a problem where, oh, some of these guys do the same thing. We're not very athletic ac- across the back line. Right. What do we do at this point? And, oh, Benny Williams is struggling. So I think that's kind of where they got into trouble. I don't know if you guys disagree, but that's that's kind of my sense on it. Is this they tried to get the best players that they could and didn't maybe necessarily think about how they would all intertwine with one another on the court. Well, and that's when you get a five star with Benny, you don't. Uh, he finally, of course, he finally hits his stride and then goes down for a season-ending injury because that's how Syracuse Syracuse is. But um, <laughs> like. You, you probably, you know, grabbing a five-star, you probably don't expect him to take until the, you know, back quarter of the season to finally get the groove and figure out where he's going and what he's doing. So you, maybe he, maybe they expected a little more athleticism somewhere in the, in the front court that they ended up not being able to plug in. Yeah, I mean, you look at, I, I thought one of the most interesting and telling parts of the entire season that got summed up in the ACC tournament was when 
Bymir was playing basically a corner wing in the 2-3 zone and looked better than any other player that Syracuse had run out in that position all year <laughs> all year long. And it kind of goes to that idea, like you look at Cole Swider, you look at what he is on paper and just the way that he walks into a room and you go, oh yeah, that's somebody who should just absolutely dominate in that very specific niche role. And he just never, he, the zone has never been his friend and he hasn't quite ever figured out how to be that long trapping wing that Syracuse loves to have in the three. And without having that on defense, the the pressure got put onto the offense and we've already covered just how limiting the offense was when you have a um, a Cole, a Buddy, and a Joe all on the floor at the same time. And with Jim's reluctance to go true small ball, push the push the tempo, go up the court, uh, you really are kind of stuck between a rock and a hard place. And we saw it a bunch this season play out. And I guess this is a really good transition topic here, James. Like as the season went on, obviously injuries are 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 a big narrative here. Like I don't think we can talk about this season and say that. Jesse Edwards or Benny Williams would have done nothing to help this team down the stretch, especially in a Duke game where you're missing Buddy Bayheim. Like the the roster crunch was very apparent in the final five minutes of that game. That being said, um, what is the other takeaway from this year that we can take into future years um, from this team? Because obviously Buddy was like the bright spot from a player perspective, but Buddy has made it abundantly clear that he's not coming back next year. So what what can we take away from this year that may be either good news for next year, bad news for next year, or interesting news for next year? Yeah, yeah. To your point, like, you know, Jesse Edwards obviously would have helped this team down the stretch. He was arguably the most improved player in the league. Did a lot of great things on both ends of the floor. Uh, his absence was sorely missed in the middle. Uh, the defense took a noticeable step back and started to get killed a little bit again from the high post and around the rim and that sort of thing. Um, and of course, yeah, Benny, Benny hits a stride against Duke. He finally has a, a career game and then he goes down. Um, you'd have to think even with the depth, even with, with another body out there, he would have helped you in that Duke game too, because when Swider picked up his fourth and John Bull came in, you know, Duke immediately takes the lead. Jim's got to play Swider. So uh, with, with that, yeah, I, I don't think that those guys necessarily would have saved this team down the stretch. Um, but they, they, you know, maybe that makes a difference in a game or two when they, they end up over 500. Um, as, as far as like going into next year, I think with the freshmen coming in, um, it's a good class. Obviously, as we know, in the ACC, you don't win with freshmen. So if Cole Swatter does come back, uh, I think that'd be a great thing. I think it'd be a great thing for a team to to bring uh, a guy like that back on a team that doesn't bring back Jimmy and Buddy. And it's no disrespect to those guys, but as we talked about, there's kind of the redundancy out there. But if you can bring in a guy who has, you know, four four years of college basketball experience already and kind of lead a young group to come to come back with a guy like Jesse Edwards, Joe Girard, Samir Torrance, guys that have played a few years, and a Benny Williams who now has one year under his belt, if all those guys do decide to come back. Um, you're starting to look like you're in you're in decent shape. And then you bring in freshmen who uh, address some of the defensive inefficiencies. So I think what we could see next year is a little bit more balance. Uh, I expect the offense to come down a little bit. Obviously, replacing Buddy scoring is going to be really hard. Um, but, you know, you, you bring in guys who were probably a little bit better fitted for the zone. Um, and the zone, certainly, it would, it would be hard to get much worse. But you bring in guys who address some of those defensive inefficiencies with uh, uh, some guys that are returning. So I think it'll be a more balanced group across the board. 
ounce would be nice. <laughs> like I just, just it's, it's, it's been just, one or the other for for right. you know think back to 2017 18 where it was a staunch defensive group but they couldn't score. So right. it's, it's been like this one or the other, and it, it doesn't have to be that way, but that's just how it's played out for Syracuse. Yeah, that yeah that squad against like a Tony Bennett Virginia is just like that. All like that's like the most painful basketball game I can think of to watch. Uh, <laughs> Like Kimbo Slice backyard brawl, but first one to forty, first one to forty that survives just wins the game. Yep. So the, I think one of the most interesting things too about this Syracuse team, and again, uh, not to not to do the Steve is old bit again. Um, and James, we, you're not already, you're not older. Than... For for the record, uh, we have a new record. We already hit that in the pre-roll. So anybody <laughs> listening, we've already covered this. So this is round two. I don't have to check yes. a timestamp on this one. Right, uh, but for but for the those who are not privy to the pre-roll and listening, this is the Steve is old bingo score. You can check that one off. Um, but my Syracuse basketball knowledge basically is the Scoop Jardine era and on. So clearly, I do not have the same frame of reference that the two of you have. And I think one of the things that has been really interesting this year um, has been the conversations about the quote-unquote state of the program or where does this team rank in the history of the program and all these questions about specifically Jim Beheim's legacy and the job that he's done this year. And one of the things that I think once you kind of take a look at the actual numbers and you just look at the things on paper, obviously this team is the worst record team that Jim Beheim has ever had, but Jim Beheim has had some teams that did not do well in conference play and whose records were propped up by the annual tour of central New York basketball. So I kind of I want to ask the both of you, and we'll start with James here, is where does this team kind of fit in the pantheon of, you know, Jim Beheim led squads? Like, obviously, they're def- they're not in the top half. But is this is this truly like the worst team that he's ever had? Or was this just a deeply flawed team that played a very difficult schedule and they're they're in the bottom half, but they're not the worst team that that Syracuse has ever had? Yeah, it's it's interesting. I haven't I haven't really given that much thought. I think in terms of uh, preseason expectations and coming in, it is one of the most disappointing teams because this team was expected to make the NCAA tournament, and obviously they fell well, well short of that. Um, you know, maybe if the the schedule is a little bit softer and there are no injuries and things go, you know, maybe that's a little bit closer uh, down the stretch. But um, it's 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 definitely in the bottom tier. Uh, it's probably in the the bottom five of of all of his coach teams. I mean, you know, my my knowledge only goes back so far, but I just think like with this team, like again, like the it's they're not extremely talented, but they're they're not for a lack of talent either. I just think it's the the guys that are so similar. Um, you don't have a, a diverse skill set enough out there to to have made this a, a interesting or a better team. Um, but but I do think it is one of the the more disappointing teams uh, for sure, and we can get into like you know the state of the program and and where all that is. But but Steve, obviously, like you, your knowledge goes back a little bit further. I'm I'm interested. Like, are there are there any other more disappointing teams, or is is this definitively like the the worst team, or at least you know obviously the record? But is it yeah. in your mind the the worst the worst team he's ever had? From what I've seen probably the only one close would probably be I think it was it would have been Dante Green and Johnny Flynn's freshman year the year after Roberts and Watkins and them graduated Um, that came to my mind too but that that's the only other one that can like that kind of comes up as I mean outside of 2001 or uh, 2002 rather and uh the the collapse 
but um and andy uh that may have been before you were born but that was the year before <laughs> we won the title uh <laughs> no and, i was born there i was, was some... at that point a maryland fan and we don't need to get into that <laughs> oh we need to on some podcast though uh no that that uh that was the half the team exodus uh mess that um if anybody ever wants to go look up that recap that uh, uh go look it up on uh, orange race site that's always an interesting read you can go click back through all the uh all the years but um that that was probably the most disappointing year just from all the stupid things that happened um but yeah this this one ranks right up there with all those um and it's weird to think because even going into it you you didn't expect it to be a banger year just knowing the roster construction but i think even even knowing that just the way it played out everything was and i guess the florida state game was the perfect analogy where the entire season was a gut punch and that it really was every time we got something going we got knocked down a peg and every time something was going right you know jesse edwards goes down or uh whatever i i still personally i'm i'm of the ilk having played enough of these athletic contests in in these ways that you know people people always talk about what if buddy was there against duke if Buddy was there against Duke, that whole game plays out completely differently because Samir isn't in there, and they don't—they probably don't end up running that triangle in two. They probably a, a lot of things change if Buddy Beheim is in there, and they—who knows—they could get run off the court like they did the other two times playing Duke. So it's—it's it's always a weird one, but I've—I've I've now rambled far and beyond the question. <laughs> No, but I think that's I think that's, that's a really good point, and I, I think James kind of opened the door for it to talk about like state of the program and legacy and stuff, and that is definitively where I want to go next. But before we get into that topic of conversation, uh, we're at about halfway point of the show, and this is where we thank our wonderful sponsors, Homefield Apparel, makers of the coziest, comfiest, coolest retro-inspired collegiate uh, apparel that you're going to find out there. They do t-shirts, they do hoodies, they do long sleeves. Steve, if you're watching on the live stream, is wearing a baseball baseball tee, which is one of my favorite things that they have. Um, They are running a bunch of fun things this March because, as you can imagine, a t-shirt company based in Indiana has feelings on college basketball. Uh, So the first thing that the home field is doing today uh, is running a mystery box promotion. So essentially, if you're listening to this on... Uh, Sunday Night Live, or you're listening to this on Monday, you still have time to get the Homefield Mystery Boxes, which are available until they're gone. Essentially, for three dollar, uh, for forty five dollars, you get three, three of the or comfiest. Yeah, I was saying. Well, don't yeah, tell Connor. Forty five dollars. What was that? So don't tell Connor, but I'm in for that. <laughs> yeah, for three dollar shirts would be great. But $45, you get three shirts. Normally, each shirt is about $30 on their own. So this is a fantastic deal. Um, Definitely go uh, check that out. There will be other March Madness promotions happening throughout. Even though Syracuse is not in the tournament this year, pick a favorite school to latch onto, and Homefield will probably have a special t-shirt for that school if they advance onto the next round. Uh, so check out Homefield Apparel. Use promo code NUNES, N-U-N-E-S, for 10% off your first order of Homefield Apparel, whether it be the mystery boxes, whether it be a t-shirt of Syracuse, whether it be a t-shirt of an anteater. They have everything that you could possibly want and more. So thank you, because, Homefield, for sponsoring us. Because who doesn't want a UC Irvine shirt? 
Who doesn't want to use? Honestly, I might buy a Washington shirt because I have a friend who's a diehard Washington fan, and the Mike Hopkins experience is going out there, which is why I want to talk to James about where the program legacy is at because I have a friend, diehard Washington Huskies fan, specifically for football and basketball. We were talking basketball and we were talking hop. And it's very funny because I was explaining to him the dynamic of Syracuse once Hop left, which has been this trend of not recruiting at a ridiculously high level consistently and the bubble life that Syracuse has come to inhabit. Uh, Hop, very similarly at Washington, has had one very good year and then a whole lot of up and down bubble life, including this season where... They were never really in the tournament field. They tried to go on a run in the Pac-12 tournament, and they got knocked off by USC. Um, I think that every conversation about where does Syracuse go from here starts with the Mike Hopkins question or the who else is there question. And James, one of the things that we have talked about a lot on this show is Jim Beheim's, um unique personality and that of that... G- James Arthur Bayheim is not going to be told when he is going to leave. He's just going to leave when he wants to. And I think that this year not being the retirement tour that everybody thought it was, not being the big Bayheim going out moment that everybody had anticipated and heard through their friend who works with somebody who works with somebody who knows a basketball manager. Um, it seems like, I mean, he's not going anywhere. And I don't know what that means for the program other than we better get used to Jim Beheim being here. And if you're an assistant coach, are you okay with that? Like, what what do you make of the current situation? And more importantly, what do you make of the Syracuse assistant coaches that are just kind of here with no official coach in waiting like Hopkins was? Yeah. Uh, so, so just to back up a little bit. And I, I will get into that, but there, there are reasons. One of the things that we, we forget about when we kind of have like this discussion on where Syracuse basketball is and, and where it's going and that sort of thing is we, we leave out a few, a few key things, like a little bit of missing context, I think. So if we back up to, you know, 2015, what, what's happening in that time? Well, obviously there are sanctions. We've talked about that ad nauseum. Uh, losing Mike Hopkins, a, a known recruiter, a guy who was really running practices and things behind the scenes and was carrying a lot of weight for the program, but maybe wasn't the face of it. Uh, that he he goes to Washington. That's that's a huge loss. Um, and then obviously the move to the ACC. There, there's a reason why you know all the former Big East schools have struggled. Uh, when you look at Pittsburgh, Boston College, especially Louisville, now is in that conversation as well. Um, and, and Syracuse, all, all those programs have struggled to, to win games and to kind of stake their claim at the top of the ACC. I think there are reasons for that. Um, and then also in that time, I think this is probably the biggest thing that we leave out is look at the college basketball programs that are good now. Like, where, where are they? Well, they're in the Big Ten, they're in the SEC, they're in the Big 12. Well, why is that? And, and I know um, I know you guys know this, but this is for, for the audience, but you know, there are football programs who have have had the success and have had uh conference television rights and, and that has uh been been so for so long so far ahead of the acc and the acc is trying to play catch up with the acc network um they're trying to play catch up with football and it may be relied on a little bit of tradition whereas you know these these football powers have kind of strong armed their basketball programs 
Um, and they've really gotten ahead I'm of really the ACC, Chester. except for, for Duke this year. The, the ACC's had a really down year. So I, I think it's kind of an interesting dynamic and in that the ACC's tried to play catch up with football, maybe relied on tradition a little bit too much with basketball. And as a result, you have a league that's really suffered this year. And Syracuse, of course, is a big part of that. Um, now, now going forward, where does this all mean? Obviously, you have you have an aging head coach with two of his sons in there that are getting negatively recruited against saying, oh, he's, he's going to play, you know, daddy ball, whatever. They're going to get their shots. Jimmy's getting shots, Buddy's getting shots. You're not going to get shots, that sort of thing. Um, so I think you take all that into account. And that's why Syracuse is where, where they are right now. Um, Steve, if you want to hop in, feel, feel free. But I think going forward, I think we are getting down to it here. Um, you know, obviously, Jim called into to Brent Axe's show a few weeks back and, and said that, you know, there is an ironclad plan in place. There is a succession plan. I think we know it's going to be one of three guys, and I think we are getting down to it here. I think we are in the, the final years here. I think there's a chance that next year could be the final year as well. So um, I think I think we're getting down to it, and we can talk going forward. But, Steve, if you, if you want to hop in, feel free as well. No, I mean, and it's, it's probably a thing where, for one, you know, yes, this would have been the, the retirement tour with him and his two sons and whatnot, but – at the same time, it's Jim. He's going to want to get his uh, his thousand back. He's going to want to get, you know, the the Jim Beheim legacy, like to not go out on the worst year of his career, to not, uh, you know, go out and even. I mean, to be fair, even to not go out and steal the thunder from his sons who are having their last year of uh, college. And it's it's weird because you know. I, I hope he doesn't hold on too long beyond because, I mean, you you live, well, you probably remember the Eddie Sutton, Lute Olsen, like all these guys that went on beyond where they needed to and were in the same boat of their their institutions could not fire them. They were, they were bigger than the athletic department. And make no bones about it, Jim Beheim is bigger than the Syracuse athletic department. He can do whatever the hell he feels like. No one is going to force him out. Um... I mean, yes, there are stupid things. Even if that he says the opposite, right, right? No matter no matter how much he downplays it, he's got a little bit of pull, and like I just I hope he goes out for his sake and for his legacy's sake on the the right note. And I think if they come back and they have a decent year next year, and uh, he's not going to do the the K Road Show, he's not going to like you know go and collect his memorabilia in every town. It's just going to be like, hey, we had a good year. Uh, you know, Red, uh, we know, or you know you were the guy, let's go. And internal to the team, they're going to know who it is. I got a hunch they're probably, like, once that ironclad uh, plan, because, you know, uh, it's Jim, and he says things on radio shows that sometimes may or may not be completely accurate. But um, whenever that plan gets executed... I got a hunch internally they're going to know. I got a hunch recruiting-wise they're going to start letting it be known just because he's not going to want to hurt the legacy of Syracuse basketball because for for all that he is bigger than the Syracuse Athletics Department and who can fire him, he also, like, his legacy is that of Syracuse basketball. And if he le- if he leaves a house to burn down, then that doesn't look good on him either. So I, th- I think it's it's going to be... It's going to be interesting to see how this all this all winds out and where what what direction this ironclad uh, plan ends up actually taking. So I think uh, I think I, I mentioned one of the one of the three names that you were you were saying we think it may be James, but um, 
Yeah. Would you like to elaborate on the the rest of the potential succession plan? <laughs> we, we know we know who it's going to be. Uh, they're not going to go outside. They're not going to hire outside the family. It's going to be Jerry McNamara, Adrian Alter, Mike Hopkins. I think I, I do think Adrian's the most likely candidate just because he's been around the longest. He has the most coaching experience. He coached at Virginia Tech um, with, with Seth. He was Seth Greenberg's assistant. Came back to Syracuse. He's been around the longest. Um, you know, we we talk about recruiting as if it's a, a head coaching criteria. I think it's kind of silly the idea of well you were a great recruiter when you were assistant you're going to be doing maybe a little less recruiting as a head coach but if if that is a criteria um you know red's pulled a lot of great recruits out of the dmv area he's kind of led the charge in recruiting since hop left so i think it's him um you know but that is we'll see what happens in washington maybe maybe something changes there where I would say if, if Mike Hopkins is out of a job and he's looking for a place now, maybe this isn't in the ironclad plan, but it's something you'd want to take a look at because people would say, well, you know, he didn't do good at Washington. Why would he be good at Syracuse? I take the other side and I say he got a lot of valuable head coaching experience uh, running his own program. He's a known recruiter. He has relationships in the Northeast. He'd be able to bring talent in. And I think that the, the fan base is sold on Jerry. Um, not, not that I, you know, this isn't to knock Jerry at all, but, you know, I think there are other guys who have, have had more, more experience, but obviously Jerry would be a great sell to the, the fan base for whatever that's worth, just because he right. has the legacy as a player and won a national championship with Mel. And he's been around a long time. Uh, he's picked it up on the recruiting trail too. And, and he's, he's done a lot of things behind the scenes too. So it wouldn't be a, a poor candidate by any stretch, but I just think he's the least likely of, of the three. Right. And he's, he's definitely the people's choice, but at the same time, basketball wise, yeah. And this isn't to, like, I, I love McNamara for everything that he's done for the program over the years. And, like, the fact that he's even back home as a coach doing what he's doing. But compared to the other two, like, he's he's not there resume-wise compared to the other two. And in all honesty, like you said, he has been picking it up recently on the recruiting trail. Recruiting for a head coach is literally just as a closer. Like, your staff is the one doing the legwork. And... You know, if if Red gets the job, it's easier to retain Jerry than if Jerry gets the job to retain Red. Totally. So, you know, when you're looking at the scape of the Syracuse program, it makes sense to stick with the experienced guy and then, you know, work your way down. So it's, I don't know, everyone, like you said, puts a lot of value in the recruiting end of things for a, a head coach. And, you know, there's a reason Nick Monroe is the ace recruiter on the football side and not Dino Babers like there's a lot of other things that the head coach has to be doing and recruiting isn't at the top of that list yeah I think um on the Hopkins note one thing I do want to note is that um he signed a six-year 17.5 million dollar extension um uh in 2019 so that deal runs through according to the Seattle Times runs through a 24-25 season so obviously the original timeline of Beheim leaving uh, that we all thought it would be would not have lined up there. But every year that he stays longer, it does get closer and closer to aligning with Hopkins as there's yet to be any conversation about an extension uh, with Hopkins right now. So you, I do want to just... know now that you've said that they're going to like next year, literally go like 28 and three and uh, <laughs> immediately get signed to a, an extension, right? 
Right. Like, I mean, that's that's the thing, though. Like one good season and they do it like because they gave him the extension after his NCAA uh, appearance. So like it would it would track that one good year and they'll lock him up there. I do think that he has a lot of goodwill there and it, we, we probably are looking in house. But I do think one of the interesting things that when we talk about the Syracuse basketball program as a living, breathing organism, uh, it does have to at some point move on without Jim Beheim. And we always we always talk about it um in like kind of hushed tones and whispers but like what happens if the next guy isn't good and i do think that one of the more interesting things about the program this year and maybe what we'll see into the future is how what does syracuse position itself as if it doesn't have jim Beheim? um that was what i my argument has been for years that Jim is going to get to dictate his own exit because Syracuse can literally sit back, pay him a ridiculously under market salary, and they get to use him as the literal PR for the program. He goes on ESPN every he'll like he'll be on ESPN tomorrow morning talking NCAA tournament with one of his friends, uh, whether it's Dan Patrick on NBC, whether it's Mike Greenberg on ESPN, like he'll do the media tour. Um, and that means that Syracuse basketball is is front and center when they have no right to be. And that's what Jim Braheim brings to you as a program. So it's very tough to imagine the next guy is going to be giving a long rope when they don't necessarily have that cachet. And so it really does come, come to like, come to the situation where I constantly am asking myself, is the next guy going to be married to a two, three zone, or are they just going to run the best system? Are they going to come in with their own ideas? Like, is Beheim going to be the shadow coach who's running things like the way that like we saw it with Shayer at Duke, like he was even attempting to like look the same as Coach K, uh, all the sideline shots like you'd see him that he was it looked like he was trying to do an impression of Coach K's face at all times, but like wasn't quite there. So I feel like, you know, Autry Hop definitively will not be that. I don't think Autry could do that if he wanted to do that. And Jerry has never really been the outspoken in the way that Beheim is. So no matter what, I feel like we're going to move in a different direction. And I don't think that's the worst thing in the world for this program. And I'm, I'm James, I'm curious as to your thoughts on this as somebody who um, uh, you and Steve both live up there. So you guys are ke more keenly in tune to this than I am. But it does seem like Syracuse post Beheim is an entire is an opportunity for the program to completely re-identify itself in a way that it's not been able to uh, in the past. And that might not be the worst thing in the world. Yeah, it, it'll be different. It'll be more different than maybe it will be at a Duke um, and maybe a little less so as a Carolina. But but I, I do think like Syracuse is different than both of those programs, too. So it's not exactly apples to apples. Um, when you look at the potential guys that are going to follow after Jim. Yeah, it's, it's going to be different. It's going to be a change. Um, do I think the next head coach, regardless of who it is, is going to play 40 minutes of two, three zone? Uh, probably not. Uh, do I think, you know, Adrian Autry or Jerry McNamara would be inclined to play a two, three zone? Yeah, I, I do. I think they would play it. Um, I think they would do some things similarly. And obviously they've, they've learned the game from Jim for, and they've been around him for a very long time. So just by nature and extension, they're going to coach in some similar ways. Um, but I'm sure they have their own thoughts and ideas that are different from Jim on, on how to run their program and uh, maybe some things that don't work and maybe some styles that are a little bit different. 
um, you know, maybe have a different approach with, with recruits and, and in coaching and, and how to uh, push buttons a little bit differently than Jim. So I, I don't think it would be the worst thing in the world. Um, I think the further and further we get away from, uh, you know, maybe a two, three zone wouldn't be such a bad thing. You know, when you, when you play 40 minutes of zone, I think it'd become predictable and, um, until March. you know, Syracuse had to, Syracuse had to do some things differently this year. Jim said he's going to play man to man next year. We'll see if he if he holds his word on that. But I think that would be uh, wise and prudent to get out of the zone for forty minutes. But I mean, uh, I mean, on the I'm old end of things, like I remember the time when Jim did not play two three exclusively, like that it was a yeah. a tool in his bet. Even the the title, like we didn't play zone forty minutes even then. Like it's people forget that it's relatively recent past that uh yeah well relatively recent if you're you know over the age of 30 uh <laughs> <laughs> that like the mix and match of not just being stuck in the zone was was the thing and i think this year showed that you know different looks even different wrinkles in the zone or something like that triangle and two that yes they were basically forced into attempting and it working against duke but like some of these wrinkles can definitely um, maybe make the regular season a little easier. And then when you're facing one of the Toms in March, you just throw the zone out there for 40 minutes and let it ride because God knows any coach with the name Tom cannot beat a two, three zone. Yeah, And it is genius. Like I do think the, the zone for, for all its critique, I do think it is in part genius to kind of roll that out there when, when he did and why he did. And for so many years it worked and it, and it has worked in the tournament yeah. when you consider that that's the most important thing in college basketball. And when you play teams that haven't seen it, uh, yeah, they get a little shell shock when, when it's thrown out at them for 40 minutes. But, you know, I, I think too, like t- teams are running their second best offense against you. I think that's smart. Uh, you're forcing teams to prepare exclusively for you and what you do. You're taking them out of what they want to do. So I do think the zone is is very smart. And when you have the athletes and when you have the personnel, it's it's something that works well. Um, the, the counterpoint is, you know, when you have a team like 2019 Virginia that comes in and bangs 17, 18 threes on you, well, may, maybe you need to get out of it for, you know, a minute or two just to give them a different look. Uh, that's the counter argument. Uh, Jim would say they would be pretty good against man too, and, and he would be right. But I think sometimes you do need to come out of it, um, and you know, exclusively plan it. You get a little bit predictable, and, and sometimes teams know how to how to execute against it. So uh, that's that's those are my thoughts on the, the, the two three zone. Steve, I don't know if you have any. No, I, I I not to cut you off, Steve, but like I miss the the full court press days that they used to run with those you know early two thousand ten teams that were just freakishly athletic. So you could go out there. And you had these guys able to run a full court press and then, you know, you basically trapped into a zone that was so effective against good teams that were not used to being, you know, pressured in that way. And especially at the collegiate level where, you know, these are these are kids, uh, that kind of aggressive defense that forces quick, decisive decision making works a lot more times than it doesn't if you execute on it. And. You know, we know that Jim will do that if he can. It's just that going back to, you know, the original conversation that we had with this, this team was just never athletic enough to to be able to run something like that. But if you know you had a uh, like I can only dream of Kaderi and Braswell in a full court press and trap kind of scheme and just those long arms and their ability to get up and down the court causing havoc for teams in the ACC. (laughs) 
Yeah, yeah when you, when you, you go imagine? press like that, you, you need to have eight or nine guys on your bench. Yeah, right. we, as we know, Jim <laughs> likes to play about seven, maybe eight max. So can you imagine? Uh, but, but I think you know, Jim, Jim can still co- like look like a lot gets made about you know Jim and it's time and, and this that and the third. But but that guy could still coach, and I think that that Duke game was was proving in that. You know, I mean to to pull out. He's he's done some different things this year with with the one uh, one one three. Um, obviously going the triangle too. I thought that was genius, you know, and, and even things, one thing I don't even think I talked about was uh, when Cole Swider erroneously was whistled for his fourth foul. It was not much of a foul. Um, you know, he, he puts in John Bowles, sees Duke goes in a run, you know, realizes Cole's got to go back in and then he goes triangle into and he puts Cole up top. I thought that was genius. You know, just, you can't really have him on the bottom. You can't really have him playing zone on the bottom. You can't have him on the bottom of the triangle and two. Um, so you put him up top and, you know, I guess Duke got a couple of looks off that, but you need a guy like that to, to not be able to pick up his fourth. Cause if, if Cole would have fouled out, that game was over. Yeah. Um, so I, th- I think, you know, he could still coach. He's, he's still doing some, some pretty impressive things that uh, might go unseen to, to the untrained eye. Absolutely. And that's, I mean, until he retires, he will still be out coaching most people in this game. Yes, like the, <laughs> he, he out coached Shashevsky. I mean, we talk yeah. about Shashevsky as a great gym out coached him. It wasn't even yeah. close. Absolutely, and he's done it numerous times. And you know, K's got the better of him sometimes too. But you know, it's he's there's a reason he's the second all time winningest coach in college basketball. Like, it's, he's he's pretty good at what he does. For all the and this is for anybody who over the years has heard me or over the year, this this year has heard me rant about you know hey it, you know it might be we're, we've been on a bit of a downward tilt it might be time to hang the Spurs up sometime soon. That's not to take anything away from the legacy and what Jim is and who Jim is. Yeah, and I, I think that that's I, that's going to be the balancing act at if Beheim doesn't get to go out with an NCAA tournament run, right? Like that's the that's the challenge with any coach who calls it quits when they don't go out after a Final Four or a national championship game appearance. Like it's just you have to you have to remember the reason they got to coach so long is because they're really dang good at what they do, and Beheim definitively fits into that like longevity conversation. Um, you know, the fact that Syracuse has done what they've done uh, is a testament to him as the head of the program. Um, for that for that period of time. So in the last 10 minutes or so, um, we've talked about Syracuse a lot. Uh, today was Selection Sunday. I know that for a lot of Syracuse fans, if Syracuse ain't involved in it, they aren't paying attention. But um, James is a big college basketball guy. Uh, Steve and I, uh, I am a big NCAA tournament guy. I take the first two days off to pour over every game and, and see what's going on. Um, neither Steve nor I have taken a look at the bracket yet so far. James, I don't know if you got to watch any of the Selection Sunday show, if you had any thoughts going into it, but like starting with the ACC and kind of moving out, I'm curious as to what your thoughts were on the ACC as a whole this year and in general, what you think about the NCAA tournament this year, just in terms of everybody talks about this year being wide open. And I think it's wide open in the fact that there's a lot of really good teams at the top. Like there's probably a good five to eight teams that could theoretically win the title this year just by virtue of, you know, they have the right ingredients as opposed to your normal like, oh, just look at the one or two seeds. Yeah. Yeah. So starting with ACC, obviously a down year. Right. Um, You know, Duke by far and away better than everybody else. Duke got the two seed uh, out west. So that's going to be an interesting um draw for them obviously they're 
Uh, you guys haven't seen it yet, but they're in South Carolina and they, they play Cal State Fullerton in the opening round game. Uh, the committee loves to match them up against Michigan State, which got the seventh seed, so that could potentially be a fascinating uh, second round game. But the rest of the league, you know, you got North Carolina on the eight seed line, uh, could potentially make some noise. They're, they're getting a, a Baylor team potentially in round two if they can get past Marquette. Uh, that has some players out with injury, definitely not as strong as last year's national championship team, uh, but still good nonetheless. Uh, Virginia Tech obviously got the auto bid. They're 11 seed going against Texas. Tough first-round draw, uh, but they've been playing some really good ball lately. I've uh, been shooting the heck out of it with their perimeter players, and they still have Aluma inside. So uh, they, I wouldn't be surprised if, if they got past Texas and beat you know, maybe a Purdue in the second round, but those, those are two tough draws for them. Um, and then Miami uh, picked up a 10 seed going up against UNC with potentially facing Auburn in the second round. And... Was that it? Yeah, Wake, Wake Forest did not get in. Wake for not much of a snub. I think people were expecting Wake to to not get into the field uh, after losing to Boston College in the ACC tournament. Uh, so not not much of a surprise, but you know, not not much representation from the ACC. Uh, obviously, oh, and then Notre Dame is in the playing the playing game as well. Um, so down year uh, overall tournament, we can get it. We can go into like the bracket and, and more if you guys want. But uh, de- definitely looking forward to the tournament. And uh, as you said, Andy, like it's not there, – there's always chaos in the NCAA tournament. There's always upsets. But maybe that's even more so in a year like this where – like it's not like last year where we knew Gonzaga and Baylor were, were by far and away the two best teams. And they, they ended up facing each other in the national championship game. Uh, I think it's much more wide open. I joked uh, I'm picking nobody to win the national championship because I look at all these teams and I'm like, none of these teams are good enough to win a national championship. Uh, <laughs> but obviously, obviously somebody has to win it. Uh, but I do think it's it's kind of wide open and we're going to see a lot of madness even more so in, in, in this year than maybe in uh, years past. I'm I'm intrigued just because. I'm I'm looking at it and like one of my one of the stats that um you know I'm a big Ken Palm believer I'm a, and I use nerd a lot too and one of the teams that it seems like got really underseated was Houston who ends up on the five line and I don't know I remember you don't you don't like that but see I might I still might be a little bit too much recency bias from the Sweet Sixteen run where they you know obviously dominated Syracuse with their size. Um, I have not watched any AAC basketball this year, so like I'm not going to pretend to know a lot about them. But why aren't you? Why aren't you buying Houston? I, yeah, so I, I love the numbers too, um, and I watch a ton of college basketball. Like I nerd out over this stuff. Um, so Houston might be better numbers wise because they haven't played against you know the rigors of of maybe uh, a Big Twelve or like an SEC. You know they haven't quite gone up against that same schedule. I, I don't know when I watch them play, I'm I'm not sold on on Houston. I I don't think that. They're a good team. They they lost a couple guys. They they don't have Sasser off last year's team. And, and by the way, like you know, Houston kind of got an easy favorable route to the Final Four last year because they played Syracuse and then they had to beat Oregon State, which uh, you know isn't in stiff competition exactly. So I'm I'm out on Houston. I don't, the numbers probably tell a, a more favorable picture of them than what they actually are. But we talk about this stuff like the eye test versus the numbers, and you kind of have yeah. to rely on the numbers the seeds and stuff like that but when i when i watch Houston, i'm like ah, i don't know i don't like this team well that's how i feel about villanova like i went to go i went to the big east final um with a friend and was not impressed with them in that <laughs> game but i also just haven't been impressed with nova in general against most of the big east who which i do not like 
I know I'm going to get UConn people tweeting at me right now, but like, listen, I don't think the Big East was that strong of a conference um, relative to the rest of the Power Five. And Nova was really struggling in a lot of those Big East games against teams that I think, but like, to me, those are a lot of red flags. So that's your, your Houston is my Nova. I like, I'm looking for ways to bounce Nova early in this tournament. It got a nice draw, so but yeah. condolences for you to, for going for that Big East bottle. That was a, a muck it up, like grind it out type of game. That was a really ugly game. So I was right next to the Creighton band, um, which I will say, like that was a lot of fun, just because they were not the they were the Cinderellas, but the building was mostly Villanova. Like no disrespect to Syracuse fans, and um, this is now the second time I've seen Nova play in the Garden, and the second time that Nova fans have been the loudest group in the Garden. Uh, so yeah, we gotta, we gotta really step that up next time that Syracuse comes through, which is actually, um, in the last five minutes, let's talk about the fact that Syracuse is coming to visit me in Brooklyn. Uh, they are playing in insert generic name of tournament that takes place, uh, around Thanksgiving. It's at Barclays Center, and unlike in past years, Syracuse is not playing on the Friday after Thanksgiving. This is the Monday and Tuesday before Thanksgiving, which my... Uh, my conspiracy senses say that the ACC might be looking to move conference games earlier and earlier and earlier. And Syracuse would be a marquee name to have in those in those slots if you wanted to do it. Wink, wink, nudge, nudge. Um, but Syracuse will be playing in a preseason tournament with St. John's, Temple, and Richmond. Weird field? Or, like, I think that that's a weird field. Am I wrong on that? Or is everybody like, no, this field makes no sense? <laughs> Strange field. Yeah, uh, Richmond is an NCAA tournament, though. The, the Spiders locked up a bit today. Uh, so that could potentially be interesting. Uh, St. John's, you know, Temple. So it'll probably be St. John's Temple, if I had to guess. Uh, Syracuse, Richmond, and then, you know, maybe Sy- Syracuse, St. John's for old Big East sake. But yeah, it's, it's a strange field. Usually those fields are strange, though. You're pulling teams from different conferences, uh, sometimes across the country. So eh, whatever. Those tournaments are all whatever. So you're you're going for the 1991 uh, throwback throwback rematch here? You gotta you gotta do the cut up before they they throw it on TV and show the highlights <laughs> and show the Richmond highlights and say it was the first 15 over a two. So yeah, I'm I'm going with that. Yeah, that. <laughs> yep. Yeah. Thankfully, Just, I was only the old seven rivalry. Then, so old rivalry. Man. That. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yes. Have we even played Richmond since then? Probably, Probably. not. Who knows. Um, yeah, that was yeah that was Billy Owens, Mike Hopkins, Conrad McRae, Red Red was on that team. Oh La- wow, Leron Ellis, Scott McCorkle. So yeah, okay. No, no, Syracuse just played Richmond three times since then. Uh, the Orange on the all-time series, three to one. Obviously, that loss stings <laughs> the most. Nineteen ninety-one, lost to Dick Tarrant. That was a sixty-nine seventy-three defeat. Uh, Steve, as you mentioned, yeah, Adrian Autry on that team, Leron Ellis, uh, Billy Owens. Billy Owens had 22 in the loss. Uh, but Syracuse has three straight wins uh, against the John Beeline coach, Richmond Spiders team in 1999, uh, a 2002 win in the NIT. Uh, so we were talking about 2002 earlier in the debacle that that season was. And then a, a 2008, a November 2008 win. Uh, in which Johnny Flynn poured in 27 points and Eric Devendorf had 22. So Syracuse has won three straight. Uh, two of those at home, the 1999 and 2008 games were, were at home. Interesting. 
It's going to be, listen, I do not, I'm never going to say no to Syracuse coming down to playing in New York, especially when it's at Barclays and not MSG, because I can literally just roll out of bed and, and show up to that game. But it does seem like a weird tournament field, though I will not complain about the non-conference strength of schedule going down a notch after the gauntlet that was this year's schedule. I'm, I'm okay with seeing less ranked teams if it means that Syracuse can actually like learn to play together and, and, pad, the, and pad the wins. <laughs> So does your wife know that we're all just rolling down for that tournament, <laughs> like the whole noon staff this, this, at Pregler's apartment? This is the guest bedroom. It's we got we got space for y'all. It's listen, we'll do the live podcast on a Monday night uh, from outside Barclay Center. There you go. There we go. Invite John. John's got some more free time now. Maybe we can get Keeley to come out from wherever <laughs> Keeley's living these days. Have a noon's reunion. Listen, the I would not hate that. A noon's reunion in Brooklyn could be a lot of fun. There's a lot of really good breweries here. And to be fair, a podcast meetup is happening pretty much every night at every bar here. So there you go. That is the way we do it. And on that note, again, uh, Steve said it before the show that I always say that we're not going to have a lot to talk about and we're going to be stretching for time. Uh, we are not. We are at our hour right now. So. Uh, once again, I severely underestimated our ability to talk about nonsense in Syracuse, um, and here we are an hour later. Thank that's, you all who that stuck our, with that's us. That's our permanent tagline, right? Nonsense in Syracuse. Yes, in that order. <laughs> um, so thank you for everybody who has stuck around and listened. Thank you to James, who uh, jumped on, pinch hit, got to do the Syracuse postmortem in a timely fashion this year, which I really appreciate. So thank you again, James, for coming on and helping out. Uh, if you're listening to this podcast uh, on your podcast listening platform of choice, please rate us, review us, give us five stars. Helps the algorithm expand the Ottoman Empire across the nation. Uh, if you are watching this on Twitch, thank you so much. Subscribe. make sure uh, So that way you can know when we're going live with the podcast and any other special shows that we might do throughout the year. If you're watching this on newsmagician.com, either in the embed for Twitch or for the podcast, Thank you for visiting the website. We really do appreciate you going through and reading our articles. All three of us really do get a kick out of it when someone says they actually read our stuff. It is still very surreal to this day. Thank you again to Homefield, our sponsor, as always. Go check them out and go check out their mystery boxes before they're gone. And with that, uh, happy Selection Sunday to you all, even though they're not in the tournament this year. Go Orange. Go Orange. <laughs>